cups of coffee chapter 9 part 1 withdrawal I think there's a perception that I drank like I did because I liked living that life or just wanted to party, but that's not why. What I think would make this most relatable is for you to consider what you imagine your best self to be. If you have a deadline or an important presentation to give at work, who is the you that shows up? I bet that the version of yourself you're now visualizing is caffeinated. I guarantee that there are things you do every morning, if not the day before, to ensure that you are most likely to show up to work as the best version of yourself each and every day. You go to bed at a reasonable hour and set your alarm clock at the exact time where enough sleep and prep time converge. You slowly get dressed in the clothes you picked out the night before while you prepare your coffee with a precise amount of hazelnut creamer. Your hands instinctively pat at your pockets, checking for your wallet phone, and keys as you finish ritualistically getting ready for the day. Being an alcoholic isn't much different, and if you disagree, I challenge you to skip your coffee tomorrow. Let's be honest, you're not doing it. You'd have to plan your detox around vacation or a long four-day weekend because that first day will be miserable. Part of your addiction to caffeine is the fear of withdrawal. You've missed your routine before, you have trained yourself to expect the symptoms. Skipping your coffee means that I'm asking you to start your day with a headache that won't go away. To a lesser extent, you'd also be afraid of a drop in productivity. The reason you started drinking is now the least significant aspect of why you continue to do so. Once you get past the headaches, maybe four days into the experiment, you're now functioning without coffee, but you're dragging ass all day and it's noticeably worse after lunch. After a month of no caffeine, you're starting to perform reasonably well without it. You've broken your dependence and you've established new routines. You're noticing the downsides, but there are a few positives too. You're a little less irritable and sleeping better at night. Then you're invited to breakfast with the team at a little Italian place downtown. Everyone on the team has been singing the praises of the coffee at this place for months. You make the exception because it's just one cup of coffee and you'll get back to your new routine in the morning. The barista places a small paper filter above the mug and slowly pours boiling water into the cup, just enough to wet the paper. She then spoons finely ground coffee onto the filter and your mouth salivates unexpectedly. She slowly pours more hot water over the coffee and a rich aroma fills the air as your pupils instinctively dilate in anticipation and the fondness of memory. The process of making one cup at a time feels equally special and frustrating. When that single cup of coffee hits your bloodstream, you're instantaneously reminded of the person you could be, how much better you'd be at work if you had a cup of this stuff every morning. You think to yourself, I'll just have a cup before major deadlines or projects when I could use a small pick-me-up. Before you know it, you're a slave to the bean again. Alcohol doesn't make you any more productive, and it's far more destructive than a cup of coffee. But the addiction is no different. I had gotten to the point that when I pictured my best self, he was buzzed. I was more loving and friendly. I was funny and outgoing with less anxiety. I didn't carry around the burdens of everything I've just described in this book, which was whom I wanted to be. Not to mention, just like that caffeine headache, I was afraid of withdrawal. Cutting out alcohol is a long and arduous process that some people say you never conquer. You just die before you can drink again. When Daphne came along, she made me feel like my best self. She was like meeting someone who makes you feel caffeinated. Imagine working a job that inspires you so deeply that you don't need to have coffee to get you motivated. 
This is not the experience most people have with work. Most people drag themselves out of bed and take drugs to be more productive so they don't get fired from a job they wish they could quit. Meeting Daphne helped me realize how important it is for you to be the cup of coffee in the life of those people you love. If you're not their cup of coffee, you just might be their reason for drinking. Realizing this also helped me see that my journey through addiction was avoidable. All I needed was someone to help me feel like I was my best self and that everything would be okay, even when I made mistakes. Like Samuel Beckett said, fail, try again, fail again, try, again, fail better. I needed someone to help me stay on track, learn and grow with me, and to do so safely. I hope that illustrates why I am so protective of that feeling, just as you would be of your morning cup. I don't want to drink as I used to or feel like I did several years ago. When I get triggered, it feels like I've skipped my morning coffee, and I'm not setting myself up to be the person I know I can be. I don't feel the way I know I can feel. I also get defensive and start projecting my trauma when I see my triggers activated in my stepbrother or my niece and nephew. I've learned that it is crucial to talk about these things because I've seen what damage they can do if left unaddressed. The remedy for the pain we are all experiencing is so simple that I have difficulty letting it continue this way. All we have to do is support and lift one another up. John Gottman conducted a study on marriage success and found that couples who responded to even the most benign interests of their partners were more likely to have lasting relationships. While watching couples interact, he discovered that if one of them pointed out something like a pretty bird and the other didn't respond or simply brushed it off as nonsensical, those couples were most likely to fail. That doesn't mean you must be interested in everything your partner is, but you must show interest in your partner, regardless of whether you like the bird. When I think of couples failing because their partner gives them dismissive head nods every time the other finds something interesting, it reminds me of almost every interaction I've ever had with my brother. I feel so uninteresting to him, and I've literally spent my entire life trying to impress him. He has the power to be a stimulating cup of high-octane espresso in my life, but he has consistently and intentionally filled my cup with lukewarm decaf. As for my mother, I don't intend to absolve her of any wrongdoing. She certainly has her issues, and getting along with her wasn't always easy. She was quick to anger and had a real vindictive side. There are things she has done that I have a hard time forgiving, but the thought experiment requires us to ask the question of ourselves. Is it okay to be difficult? Is she still deserving of love and patience despite her flaws? How different would things be if we were more patient with each other and showed interest in our unique differences? Is it okay for the people we love not to live up to our expectations? As much shit as I've talked about my brother in this book, I've never wanted to write him off. I want to improve our relationship, and I want him to know that the consequences of his actions extend beyond just himself. According to what he has taught me, as someone that brings me pain, he should be written off and is no longer worth my time or admiration. This mode of thinking is a selfishly limited view of what it means to be a family. Likewise, I don't want him to write me off because I've proven to be more emotionally complex than he may prefer. To be written off because I wrote a book bad-mouthing everyone in our family. I want it to be okay for us to be our unique selves without worrying if we're going to love each other at the end of the day. My stepmom is a great example. I like her just fine, and I'm glad to have her in my life. I can tell she makes you genuinely happy. I may have a difficult time with her, but it's not because of her. I know I'm the one with the problem. I'm jealous of her getting to spend so much time with you, and I want you to myself sometimes. 
As I explore my trauma, I don't want her around for that. I feel like she's making it harder for me to have these conversations with you. Without her doing anything wrong, I'm already annoyed with her the second I see her. Every time I call, she's on speakerphone. When we FaceTime, she's in the background. I am torn between being accommodating and wanting space. Inevitably, it comes off as irritable, and I hurt her feelings. I also have some heavy mommy issues, and she has now been more of a mother to me than my biological mom, which brings up some difficult emotions. I've probably sent mixed messages over time as I have given her access to me as a mom, but then I've turned around and kept her at a distance, strictly as your wife. That's me being difficult, and I'm aware of it, but is it okay for me to be a little difficult? She knows me well enough and has seen everything I've been through growing up. She should recognize the awkward position she will always be in as my new mom. What I mean is, if I need space, can it please be okay? For her to know that it's not that I don't want her in my life, I just want my dad to myself for a week because I'm struggling with some things. There have been numerous awkward interactions that a simple clarification could have quickly resolved. That isn't possible without good communication, understanding, and acceptance of who we are, even when we're not our best selves. Likewise, I can work on adapting to how things have changed. There was a time when it was just you and me. I was directly impacted by every decision you made, and you were always cognizant of that. When you remarried and adopted her kids, your priority slowly changed. As I grew more independent, your actions stopped affecting me as much. It was natural for your relationship with my stepmom and her kids to become the focus of your life. I know that my brother and I will always be the most important people to you, but our family dynamics have changed. I used to be able to complain about her and share my frustrations. At some point, I was no longer complaining about my stepmom, I was complaining about your wife. I used to be able to tell you anything without judgment, but now I have to watch my mouth for fear of sounding ungrateful. Without the ability to vent my frustrations, the lack of communication fostered animosity. That subtle change happened so slowly that I didn't catch it until you took a laundry complaint far more seriously than you should have. I recognize a contrast because I have that freedom of expression with Daphne's family. They try to understand me, and they've gotten to know my personality. Daphne's mom is a cup of coffee for me. I didn't think I could ever see someone as a mother figure again. If I did, it wouldn't have been in a good way. She has taken an interest in my passions, praises me for what I do well, comforts me when I fail, and provides me the luxury of being as difficult as I need. I don't have to change who I am because I'm unafraid that she'll write me off or give up on me. She will love me unconditionally, a feeling I've been too scared to try and experience with you and my brother. A feeling I'm hoping to gain by writing this book. The changes we now make can guide us toward growth and understanding. It's not about altering ourselves. I don't want to feel the way I did when I was an alcoholic. I don't want to get triggered anymore. I have kids now. I never want to fall into addiction again. I have grown very protective of the relationships that provide me the strength to resist temptation. I may break from time to time and have a drink. In writing this book, especially the chapters about my mom, I had to sit down with a few beers just to access emotional memories I had kept safely tucked away in the dark recesses of my subconscious. The only reason I can be so vulnerable is that I have the love and support of my wife, whom I know will still be there afterward. I can be completely exposed but still feel absolutely safe. I'm happy to report that since finishing this audiobook, I have maintained my sobriety. 
At the time of writing this, it has been 486 days since I had anything to drink and almost 12 years since I did any drugs. If you don't count the time I accidentally ate those edibles last year. Part 2. The Metric System when I was working the graveyard at my first job after getting my license, I needed something to do on my days off when the rest of the world was sleeping. I started a skateboard magazine with photos, comics, and articles. The magazine opened the doors for me to meet interesting people in the Northern California skateboard industry. Before long, I had a local press making us boards. We built a team and started filming for a skate video. I crashed more than I landed anything, and my body was feeling pretty haggard by the time we wrapped filming. There were several older skaters I knew who swore by taking CBD after skating, so I gave it a shot. Cannabidiol, CBD, is an extractable compound in marijuana that is touted as being a potent anti-inflammatory without any of the psychoactive properties of THC. I started with a cream I would rub into my knees, and the placebo seemed to help with the pain the following day. I experimented with oils, tinctures, gummies, and smoking the flower. I noticed a significant difference quickly and made CBD part of my routine every time I skated. I kept trying different methods of ingesting CBD, and I had the idea of getting some from a marijuana dispensary. I figured they would have the purest CBD if they could legally sell marijuana. When I talked to the young kid at the counter, I told him I didn't want any THC and didn't want to feel stoned. I was only looking for something that would help with my knee pain. He convinced me that one milligram of THC was so low that I'd probably not feel it but that it would improve the body's ability to absorb the CBD and the pain relief would be more effective. They didn't drug test at work, so it didn't matter if I had a negligible amount of THC in my system. I only feared feeling mentally out of control like I had so many years earlier. I looked around the shop and saw a fridge with psychedelic-colored energy drinks. The bottom of each can read 10 mg THC. My general knowledge of the metric system identified that this drink was a power of 10 more potent than the gummies I had been offered, so I convinced myself I could likely handle a tenth of a dose. I nervously paid and then ran to my car. I ate two gummies on my drive home without thinking much about it. Thirty minutes into my commute, I was singing loudly to my music and felt unusually relaxed. I was home another 30 minutes later and took the family to a Mexican restaurant. Daphne was driving, and we were halfway to Salsa Town when my face started melting. I was suddenly stoned and hadn't told anyone what I had taken. I wasn't expecting to be dazed at all. I thought I would get a little giggly at worst, but now I was staring out the window, trying to gather myself. Like waves violently crashing on the beach, my level of stoned kept increasing, and I was scared Daphne would be upset with me. I turned around and looked at my kids and gave Pepper a warm smile. She smiled back at me, but I quickly turned around and thought to myself, she knows. I was crippled with anxiety, and I fought back the panic of heading to a restaurant with my wife and two young kids, too stoned to know if I was breathing too loud when it occurred to me that I didn't have to go to the restaurant if I didn't want to. I turned to Daphne and said, I don't really want to be in public right now, I'm super stoned. Daphne slowly turned to look at me. With a confused expression on her face, she said, What do you mean? I took some CBD with a little THC in it, and I think I took too much. I cringed, not knowing what she would say, but her eyes widened, and she laughed it off. We went back home, and Daphne cooked dinner while I played with the kids on the floor. 
that feeling of my reservoir spilling over the edge into psychosis had returned, and I was abruptly thrust back onto the edge of sanity. Surprisingly, I noticed something about my personality that was very different now. The anxiety would swell like a painful reminder but then harmlessly subside as I played with my children. Taking a page from what Carl Jung described as one of twelve archetypes of inborn personalities, I imagine we all have a shadow of ourselves composed of the things we want to hide. The shadow self is made of what we're ashamed and scared of, and it controls our triggers. Most people ignore the shadow and push it down deep into their subconscious. As we continue ignoring our shadow self and feeding it the emotions we don't deal with, that shadow gets stronger. That rush of anxiety I got, worried that Daphne would judge me for being stoned, was my shadow self. I had now just awakened that shadow from a dormant sleep with edibles after an irresponsible application of the metric system. I recognized now that I was never on the verge of losing my mind but that I had gotten to the point where the shadow self was transitioning into my true self. My shadow self was becoming the dominant perception of whom I thought I was. Depression, and sometimes addiction, is a symptom of the imbalance that occurs when the shadow self takes over. That feeling of overfilling my reservoir was a change in perception. My self-identity was altered, and I convinced myself that I was the sum of all my worst qualities. Now that I had awakened the beast and those feelings started to rush back over me, it was Daphne who helped me process that shadow again. By merely accepting me without judgment, the shadow was instantly starved of its power and died off again. I did recognize that while the support of my wife granted me immunity from the pull of my shadow, it still existed deep in my subconscious and would continue to trigger my alcohol dependence. Now that I had the power to face that shadow without the fear of being taken over by it, I knew it was time to face it for real. Part 3. The Doldrums I went back to the dispensary and explained that I was looking for something a bit stronger, but I was writing a book and wanted to maintain a certain level of awareness and concentration. The kid behind the counter suggested a vape pen with a high ratio of CBD to THC. He said the product wasn't all that popular because the high wears off too quickly, but that was precisely the experience I was hoping to cultivate. I took my new pen and checked into a hotel room after work. The plan was to smoke a bunch of weed, awaken the shadow, and confront it face to face. I propped pillows up on the bed in the shape of a large recliner, and I got comfortable with my laptop. I struggled to figure out how to use the vape pen, and then I took a few hits and started writing. When the high came on, I could feel the shadow as it slowly cast over my mind, and then I immediately regretted not being home with my family. I thought about my wife taking care of the kids without my help. I thought about missing out on an opportunity to be playing with my kids as I sat in a hotel room, wasting my time smoking weed as an adult. I thought of what my brother would think. Would he think of me as a lousy father and write this process off, assuming I was a druggie? I immediately felt so overwhelmed with depressive thoughts that my first instinct was to push that shadow back into my subconscious. I tried to focus on the book and the chapter I was on, but then it dawned on me that this was why I was here. I was supposed to be conquering this feeling that was enveloping me, not continuing to avoid it. Once the shadow had cast its darkness across the entire room, I found myself standing in a forest of trees blackened by ash. They were mostly decomposed and hollowed out by the beetle infestation that had stripped each of them down to bare trunks with sparse projections of crumbling branches. There was a light blue mist hanging in the air, 
and no matter how long I ran, the scene never seemed to change except for a small clearing where I could see the pit I had crawled out of many years ago. Partially covered in moss and decaying plant material was the rope Daphne had given me to climb out when we fell in love with each other. It seemed appropriate that she gave me the strength and courage to use that same rope to climb back in, not out of depression, but on a search-and-destroy mission. The edges of the pit were slippery, and I shuddered at the memory of how difficult it was to get out, and then I cringed at the thought of how much easier it would be to fall back in. Now at the bottom, I did my best to get comfortable as I sat among the things I had left there so many years ago. I could feel the weight of the lethargens pressing me against the walls of the pit as I again started to become one with the doldrums. The darkness was overwhelming, but I caught a glimpse of my daughter's face. Earlier that day, Pepper had a dentist appointment that we had both been stressing about for weeks. They were filling one of her cavities, and we knew she would have to have a Novocaine injection into her gums. I was expecting the worst because we had done this with her before, and the last time, she bit the doctor and kicked a dental tech. I left work early and drove an hour to meet her and her mom at the dentist's office. I talked her through the process so she would know what to expect. I told her she could squeeze my hands as hard as she wanted if she were scared or in pain. I convinced her that doing so would transfer her pain to me. It wouldn't hurt either of us very badly if we shared the discomfort. I sat in the chair next to her, and I held both of her hands. She completely trusted me, and I felt her squeeze my fingers when the dentist arrived. I distracted her through the entire procedure, and she didn't notice she had gotten the shot. It reminded me of when she had spent a week in the children's hospital. Daphne and I woke up to Pepper crying in her bed. When we entered the room, we found that she was covered in puke and had a low fever. I stayed home from work to take care of her, and Daphne took baby Jade to her mother's house in an attempt to keep him from getting sick. I pulled our bed out into the living room and set up a sick day movie theater with chicken noodle soup and Gatorade. We were ready to cuddle all day and fight off her first little kid virus. She was in relatively good spirits until she started screaming in pain and holding her back right where her kidneys would be. I rushed her to urgent care, but I disagreed with the tests they wanted to run. There was likely a list of things they automatically test for when any kid comes in with similar symptoms, but I knew my two-year-old well enough to know they were on the wrong track and wasting our time. It was clear they weren't going to move on without first testing her for strep throat and the flu. I eventually agreed to play the game and waited for the results. Everything came back negative, as I expected, so they finally started warming up to what I initially feared. Pepper was potty trained, but she was routinely weird about pooping. She would hold it as long as she could, and it would be painful when she finally went. This turned into a fear of hers, so she'd keep it in to avoid the pain of pooping. Soon a weird cork had become constipation, and now that constipation was impaction. Her screams were coming in waves, and she only found relief after a short bout of explosive diarrhea. I figured she had a stomach virus in combination with impaction. The practitioner agreed and ordered an x-ray. They confirmed impaction but were unsure whether it was due to a twist in the colon or intussusception. We would have to wait a few hours for the ambulance to arrive, and then it would take us to the children's hospital, an additional hour's drive away. I declined to delay her treatment further and rushed her there in my car. The waves continued, ranging from talkative, curious toddler to lethargic zoned out zombie. This was followed by a blood-curdling scream, an explosion of diarrhea, and then back to a relatively normal toddler. 
We were checked into the ER and had just gotten to our room when she suddenly and unexpectedly crashed. She had been talking to the nursing staff and flexing her knowledge of animal sounds when her eyes glossed over and she turned purple. Her doctors rushed in to take her vitals just as the color in her face was returning. She realized where she was, screamed, had more diarrhea, and then went back to making playful animal sounds. The purple was a new sign that whatever was going on with her was getting worse and we were potentially running out of time. I kept thinking about what would have happened if we had waited for the ambulance. The doctor came into the room and explained that they thought her intestines were twisted in cutting off blood flow. They wanted to take her immediately to the operating room to do exploratory abdominal surgery to find the twist and correct it. I asked them how much pain she would be experiencing and asked them to clarify aspects of it that didn't seem to fit what I was seeing in her behavior. I was telling them they were wrong and that they needed to figure something else out when she crashed again. I was relying so heavily on paternal instinct and a hope that I knew my daughter better than a handful of doctors who had never met her. They were simply following some medical flow chart based on her symptoms. My confidence slipped every time she crashed. I eventually gave in to their method and agreed to the surgery. Part 4. Silhouetted Reflections I was kicking myself, thinking I had let it go too long as I carried her tiny body to the operating room. They wanted to rush her into surgery, so taking her there in my arms was faster than waiting on a bed. We passed the nursing station on the way to the OR when the doctor I had been arguing with stopped me. She hustled around the corner of the desk and told me she thought I might be right. She said another provider was only 10 minutes away, and he suggested we wait it out and gave her some medication to try. The emotional roller coaster I was on had me feeling overly vulnerable, and I would have agreed to anything at that point. I just wanted her to be taken care of, and she was now well past the care I could provide. She continued to cycle through scary moments, but the severity and duration decreased each time. Her care team took us to the room that Pepper and I would stay in for the next week while she recovered. She was finally confirmed to have rotavirus, and her symptoms had been exacerbated by intestinal impaction. Once the impaction cleared, she had excessive diarrhea, but she was finally able to rid the virus from her system, and her condition gradually improved. We cuddled in the children's hospital 24 hours a day for an entire week. Her little arm was in a protective sling that kept her IV from moving, and she wasn't allowed to eat anything until they could confirm that her intestines were unaffected. As a show of support, I didn't eat that week either. She seemed so sweet and delicate in my arms. I could now see her again in that state as I lay in the pit that I had intentionally re-inhabited. The father that always shows up for his daughter, and the father that this shadow was trying to convince me I was, cannot coexist. I realized that the guilt and shame I felt for not being there with my kids at this moment was similar to how I feel every time I'm away from them. I love my children so much that I regret not spending every moment with them. I was making myself feel bad about missing my kids, but there's nothing wrong with doing things without them. I'm not a bad father for having hobbies. Soon, the only thing I felt while sinking into my mattress of shame was the overwhelming realization that I really love my kids. Suddenly, I was no longer lying on the pit floor with my back against the cold walls. I was standing on my own two feet, held up by the thought of my wife and children. The vines that had grown around me relaxed their grip and fell to the ground with a sickening thump, immediately relieving my shoulders of their weight. 
I recognized that I didn't need to feel guilty for leaving the kids with Daphne while I spent a night in a hotel because she supported me and was allowing me the space to explore my emotions. A bad habit I had developed of feeling guilty instead of grateful when someone helps me. My wife and I agreed that the healing I would gain by facing my demons this way was a gift I could one day give to my children. I refused to hand my pain down to them just because I had never addressed it in myself. The pit started to fill in, and I was lifted as the ground rose below me. It was no longer difficult to climb out of the depression as I could now easily walk away. The forest around me was still dark, but the mist had cleared. The pit I had been in was now nothing more than a mound of freshly turned soil. I knelt to scoop a handful of the loamy black dirt and let it slowly fall from my hand, as I watched it recollect on the ground. I saw my shadow mimicking my movements, and I no longer felt afraid of that silhouetted reflection. I was happy to see it as an extension of self and as much a part of me as anything else in my perception. My shadow was no longer something to fear or regret. It was a gentle reminder of who I am and where I've been. I closed my laptop and set it on the bed next to myself. I swung my legs off the edge of the bed and ran into the bathroom. I wanted to see the person I had just become. I knew I was still me, and I knew what I looked like, but I hadn't seen what I looked like when I felt like this. I wanted to see past my shadow at my true self. I burst into the bathroom, and there, looking back at me in the mirror, was a goofy-looking man in his late thirties with long blonde hair and oversized glasses. I laughed at what a character I still am after all these years, and I couldn't help thinking about what it would be like if you had been an equally over-the-top character. How different would my life be if my brother, the person I looked up to most in my life, were an eccentric artist with a stupid mustache that says, I take art more seriously than life. What if my mom had been some gnarly surfer chick who wanted to help me make shitty skate videos? What would my life be like if I had been more understood and accepted for the weirdo that I am? To have known that the things I was trying to suppress about myself were my greatest strengths. I had spent my entire life trying to emulate personalities that didn't match my own, and it made me feel like I didn't belong or that I had failed to be what I was supposed to be. You and Shannon had always represented not only what I considered the norm but also a sense of perfection. I was now looking at myself with respect and admiration for the first time in my life. My idea of what a father should be had expanded to include someone like me. I realized I had not only become the best version of myself, but I was also the best father I could be to the two artistic little weirdos I was raising. I was granted an opportunity to heal my past self by supporting my kids in the ways I felt I needed at their age. The weight of expectations and the anxiety of perfection were all completely gone. As advertised, the high had completely worn off, and I was now standing in a very normal best western-looking hotel room. I had accomplished what I came for, and after glancing at my watch, I realized I had checked into the room only 45 minutes ago. I had just spent $300 to be alone for 45 minutes, and all I wanted now was to be at home with my wife and kids. I spent 37 years trying to live up to two people that would never understand me, and it took me 4-5 to five minutes to realize that the only person I ever should have tried to impress was myself. I wanted to thank Daphne for giving me the strength and support to learn that on my own. I was ready to play with my kids and squeeze them as hard as possible because they see more in me than anyone ever will. I also decided I was now ready to share my story with you.